0: Good evening, everybody. Um, Let's start out with a little singing right now. Uh, Love this song. We haven't done it in a while here. It's 13, way back at the beginning of the hymn book. 13, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's called Bless His Holy Name. 13, would you stand, please? Now, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We do it again, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Great things He
1: has done. Great things
0: He has done. Great things He has done. Great things. Bless His holy name. Back to the beginning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. within me bless his holy name he has done great things yes yes he, he has done great things he has done great Bless his holy name. Father God, we have come to bless your holy name. We thank you for who you are and as you've allowed us to be your children. We thank you that we have that wonderful relationship with you, Father, Son. And we ask that you would open our hearts, open our ears that we might receive. Holy Spirit, you are so welcome here. We ask that you would just penetrate each one of our lives as we work out with fear and trembling our salvation before you. Thank you, Father, for your gracious love to us, for, for the fact that you gave us Jesus, the unspeakable gift for each one of us here in this room. Thank you, Father. And I ask... Um, a special blessing on Dr. Lilback as he brings what you have for us. And he's so obedient to your, your calling for him to be here and teach us. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Why don't you sit down, grab the paper that you were given, please. And Dr. Lilback, why don't you come up and help us out with this wonderful new song. And uh, we tried this last week, and uh, it's uh, written by yeah. Dr. Lilbach. By, so.
2: by Harry Chapin and John <laughs> Newton.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a few people added their support in there. So uh, it, it starts with uh, the Amazing Grace tune and these wonderful words. So let's give it a go again. Y'all ready? All right, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Let's sing it together. The risen Christ has sent his word To light the church below Alone we're dim in this dark world But by his grace we glow the earthly church will stray at night when darkness tells its lies. We must take night and shine Christ's light, then blessings will arise. Uh, Carol, you lead this one. Here we go.
1: The Lord and his churches and his spirit too, seven bright stars when the church was new. They weren't living as supposed to do, would their candlesticks be moved soon? No longer shining out good news, no longer shining out good news.
0: The church has persecution here, and may be small or weak, but candlesticks shine, shine everywhere, wherever our Lord. closed when Christ, Christ
1: succeeds,
0: nor open if they are closed, closed. so shy.
1: Churches and his spirit too Seven bright stars When the church was new They weren't living As supposed to do Would their candlesticks be moved soon No surely shining out good news No longer shining up good news
0: Not, not cold, not, not cold, cold But not blind in sin, sin. Dead flirting with the world Through gates of pearl Let's hasten him in. Let's into to hell We're hurled Behold the
1: light Outside
0: the door be well, So, hear his voice and greet once more, and
1: meet and eat with him. The Lord and his churches and his spirit, too. Seven bright stars when the church was new They weren't living as supposed to do Would the candlesticks be moved soon No longer shining out good news No longer shining out good news Do
0: you have ears to hear his call With With yearning Bible stars. The final chorus.
1: Oh, oh Lord, Lord, will your churches with your spirit too. Heaven's bright stars with the gospel true. Help us shine as we're supposed to do. May our candlesticks burn for you. Forever shining out good news. Forever shining out good news.
2: made a record. It's been sung two weeks in a row. It's on a roll. All right. Thank you. Praise the Lord. If you listen carefully to those lyrics, they try to capture some of the spirit of what we're talking about in the ch- uh, churches uh, to uh, that Christ writes to in Revelation 2 and 3. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin, and we'll review and then launch into our message for tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the great privilege to study your word. We praise you, Lord, for this uh, wonderful congregation that longs to be one of your bright, shining candlesticks in the world, sending the gospel to mission fields and right here into the community, brightening each heart with the good news that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior and the guide of our lives. Would you please teach us tonight by your spirit? We indeed would pray that we have ears to hear what you are saying to your churches and have been saying down through the centuries. We pray, Father, that you would bless us now as we bow in your presence and by your grace open our hearts and our ears to your teaching. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the seven churches of the apocalypse, they're found in Revelation 2 and 3. These are letters from the risen Christ to real churches in space and time addressing issues that were real in their ministries, their lives, but represent the perpetual challenges that churches are going to face in all times and all places. Now, we review very quickly. I'm a reviewer when I teach. I want to build on it. Make sure you don't forget. So this is the map of the ancient world. You see how it goes from Jerusalem north to Antioch, westerly along Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and there at the far western edge of what would be modern Turkey, Asia Minor, are the seven churches. Paul wrote to seven churches on his own, and one of them, Colossae, is close to Laodicea, and the other one, Ephesus, is the same one that we have studied. Uh, There's a closer map. You see the relationship now to Laodicea. A quick geographical map. We won't study that. We've looked at it before. Uh, Here you see now the... The idea of the coin of Rome, this is a Roman period. Rome is in charge after Greece. These cities have been built, conquered, and continued under the Roman rule. And now we see their numbers. We see how they're numbered from the Isle of Patmos, 40 miles off into the Aegean Sea. The first church is Ephesus, and it goes northerly. And so you go from Ephesus to Smyrna, up to Pergamon. And then it turns southeasterly and goes down to the next four churches. Tonight we're going to be looking at the most northerly church, Pergamum, and the first church on the descending side, which is Thyatira. Last week we looked at Ephesus and Smyrna. As we continue on, we want to remind you that seven is a significant number in the Bible, but especially in the book of Revelation. It suggests something of perfection and completion, like the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath, the seven lamps in the temple etc. Now there are the seven churches with the seven letters that have seven parts, suggesting this is the completion of what we need to hear from Christ about the concerns he has for the church, the kind of things churches are going to face everywhere throughout time. They're representative of all churches in all times, in all places. As we look again, the idea of the seven stars isn't it interesting that there is a constellation in the heavens called the Pleiades, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. Uh, That's uh, an image that would have been well-known in the ancient world. Uh, So it's picked up, and there's much we could say about Patmos and uh, the churches of Asia Minor, which we will not review here. I want to reiterate, as you've already heard me say, the one approach to interpreting the churches in Asia Minor is that they represent seven stages of history Uh, That is a view that I'm not speaking to. I would actually say they do not represent seven stages of history, but they represent all churches in all ages. My problem with that interpretation is captured by this quote from William Hendrickson, who says, if you accept that view, then you need to say the Reformation church, the church of Sardis, was the dead church, and the Reformation church was anything but dead. If only we had some Reformation fire in us today. So it doesn't really fit. Uh, what we want to see, though, is that Christ is the new temple. is standing in the midst of these seven churches that are reflecting his glory. They are the candlesticks in the temple of Christ. He's been raised. He said, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. He is the risen Christ, the new temple. We are his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We shine out the light. A beautiful image for the church. There's a great thought of how God reveals himself, which we cannot review here, how the churches are all connected, Uh, much we could say that gives us this idea of a connectional church, one church connected with another, working together. Uh, We find the seven parts, which we'll look again, and here are the seven church types. Uh, We will look at them uh, more quickly in a moment, but we list them out here. And so uh, what we want to say then as we look at uh, our images is that Ephesus, Ephesus, was the church that was orthodox but that had lost its first love. And so when we went through the part of that letter, which we don't have time to do now, what I do want to say is that that is the danger of most churches like Bay Presbyterian, most seminaries like Westminster Seminary. We're orthodox, we are trying to do the right thing, and we just begin to go through the motions and lose our passion for the lost for missions, for making a difference in the world. We're not doing anything wrong. We're just not on fire for Christ. And so that's the concern with the Ephesian church. And I think that's one of the things that we actually just sang in the song. Oh, Lord, give us burning hearts, just like those men on the road to Emmaus. Remember, their hearts were burning within them when they had unwittingly met the risen Christ. Okay, The church at Smyrna, The second church, the persecuted church. This is the only church that does not receive a condemnation or criticism from Christ. Uh, It is the church that is uh, a very beautiful city. This is where the church once met in these arches. Uh, But we discovered that Jesus says, the risen Lord, you're going to suffer persecution. And what we find then is the great story of Polycarp. Polycarp is the ancient church father that actually was an elder in the church at Smyrna, and he knew the Apostle John and he lived to many years after John and then he died as a martyr unwilling to renounce his faith in Christ. So a prototypical martyr, the church in Smyrna. And last time we talked then about many of the churches around the world that are experiencing persecution. So we tried to make the connection with the Ephesian church with many churches and the Smyrna church with many persecuted churches. Well tonight, Now we're going to be looking more carefully, and we'll slow down with that review, and we're going to talk about the church in Pergamum. This is the sexually impure church, the church that seemingly is solid, biblical, and yet it is masking over very serious problems in the arena of moral behavior. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about Pergamum. Remember we said it's the most northerly of the first three churches. It would have been the capital city, of this period in history and it's a you can see some of the uh, columns still standing there and you can look to the right and you can see a statue and this man is Asclepius. He is the one that you see when medical doctors have their image with the snakes circling around. He was the god that was worshipped in this area. They worshiped the wisdom of the serpent that had healing powers and because of its ability seemingly to go into the ground and die had come out alive, and because of its wisdom. Now the serpent has many different nuances, doesn't it? It doesn't suggest the actually the worship of the living God. It suggests turning from him. But this would have been the god of this uh, city, uh, and it had a great hospital. Classical medicine was practiced here. It had a great uh, theater, an amphitheater that was built. Uh, when you go to these cities, they've lasted all these years. I wonder how many of our th- theaters are going to last for 2,000 years that we build today. They're built out of stone and they're still there. Quite remarkable. Okay, now as you take a close look at this image, you can see in the bottom right hand side what is uh, called the throne of Zeus. This was actually a, a phenomenally beautiful place with all kinds of carvings like you see on the left hand side. And this entire Structure was taken up by German archaeologists and brought to Berlin. It's actually reconstructed in Berlin. Uh, the nation of Turkey is claiming it should be sent back to them. But when we read in this letter as we will, you are where is the throne of Satan, this is it. This would have been an extraordinary symbol of the God of the ancient world that was worshipped there and the symbols of the gods fighting and likely when the image was suggested of that you live where Satan's throne is. It's probably the structure. Now there are many people who have said it's amazing that that was moved from this city in the ancient world. It was preserved for centuries archaeologically unearthed in the late 1800s, brought to Germany in the 1900s just in time for Adolf Hitler to make many of his speeches from here. Isn't that remarkable? Is that a coincidence? I'll let you think about that. I don't want to be a divine conspiratorialist, but there is a strange concatenation of events here. Okay. Now, let's take a closer look at this epistle. Okay, this is the third of the letters that Christ brings to John in the Isle of Patmos. He's in prison. He's on this island 40 miles into the Aegean, and heaven is opening up. The risen Christ is saying, Write these down and send them to the churches. The third church, the church of Pergamum. What do we write? Well, <clears throat> each of them have this parallel pen. Starts with the commission or salutation. It begins with, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. Now remember the word angel means a messenger. It could be a heavenly messenger like the angels of Bethlehem, or it could be the earthly messenger, like Pastor John, or like all of you, because you know you are evangelicals. You know that means you're the good angel message bearers? When we say we're evangelicals, it means the good message. We are those that proclaim the good news of Christ. It's written to this church, a historic church, and then it says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now you remember that as the letters are sent, an element that is especially present in that first vision of Christ in chapter 1, the last two weeks I had Pastor John read Revelation 1, so now you remember it's the context. And something out of that letter that manifests Christ in his glory is picked up in the letter and applied to the church. Now this church, for some reason, needed to have the sharp two-edged sword of Christ you remember the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth what does that represent the word of God the sword of the spirit they especially needed the poignant powerful penetrating message of the risen Christ's word they needed to hear it and we'll find out in a moment why first of all the Lord will go on to say something positive about the church The Lord, like a good uh, counselor, a good leader, good employer, doesn't always say negative things. He sees the positive, and based upon that, he suggests the improvement that must follow. The commendation is this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We just saw a picture of what would have been Satan's throne, the temple of Zeus, the seat of Zeus, there that was in Pergamum. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This is a fascinating passage. It says, This church has already begun to experience persecution like is to come to the Smyrna church. They had already seen one martyr in their midst by the name of Antipas. They are in the place where Satan dwells. This is the place where Satan's throne is. And they have not backed away from their witness for Christ. They're a courageous church. A suffering church. And it is interesting as you look at the word witness here. The word for witness in Greek you actually know. You say, well I've never studied Greek. But you do. Have you ever heard of a martyr? That's what the word for a witness is in the Greek language. A martyr is a witnesser who witnesses so faithfully that he does not stop witnessing even if it costs him his very life. He witnesses faithfully even unto death. So the Greek word is martyreo. In English we get the word witness, martyr, that implies one who lays down his life as he witnesses for Christ. So, a commendable church. Many good things. But, There is a condemnation. The Lord says in verse 14 of chapter 2, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, now we have some studying to do on this verse, right? So we start off by saying, everything is not right. There's a tremendous strength to the church in Pergamum. But the Lord says there's something that's not the way it should be. There's some of you that have the teaching of Balaam. Do you remember the story of Balaam? Do you remember the story of the jackass that spoke? That's the story of Balaam. He was the hired prophet. He was the one that was hired by uh, the king of another country against Israel to come and bring curses against them, renouncing uh, the blessing of God. And he was a paid, hired, prophetic gun. He shows up at the right moment. Instead of cursing, he brings a blessing. He said, I can only say what God's Spirit tells me to say. This happens three times. And blessing after blessing after blessing is being placed upon Israel. And then, of course, finally, uh, he's really in trouble with the king who wants to harm the Israelites. And Balaam says, listen, I'll tell you what their Achilles heel will be. Let's get them involved in a religious worship that has a sexual overtone, that has an orgiastic component, and then we will get them to turn from the living God. And, of course, that's what happens. So now we see with that backdrop of Balaam uh, taught uh, Balak the king to put this stumbling block for Israel, there is the same sort of thing going on at Pergamum, a melding of the pagan religious rituals of fleshly, unbiblical sexuality and mixing it with the church. Some would identify that with their eating of the foods as the sacrifice of food to the idols, and then there would be following the sexual worship that would be to those same idols. Now forgive me for being so blunt, but we should be honest about this. Uh, uh, One of the well-documented examples of this in the ancient world is in Corinth. The Acropolis, the high city of Corinth, was a place where there was a regular uh, worship center where there were shrine prostitutes by innumerable numbers. Corinthianosimai, a Greek word means to act like a Corinthian and what did it mean? To go to Corinth and worship through sexual activities with the prostitutes in the temple this was an act of worship and so that would go on and this was part of the world and it always would begin with the sacrifice you would offer sacrifice to the God, you would share in the meal and then you would enter into this licentious uh, brothel of worship to God. Now this probably is what the Nicolaitans are. The Nicolaitans probably named for a man named Nicholas who said let us see how we can just simply identify ourselves with the world. And so there were some in the church that were trying to argue for this. This kind of open sexuality that was inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture that says that you shall not commit adultery that sexuality, a great gift from God, belongs in marriage. And so at this point, we can see the condemnation. And so the correction, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the sword of the word calls for repentance. But the word of God brings the promise that those that refuse to heed God's word will in fact see his judgment. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. His sword that brings life is also a sword that will bring judgment. And this is the warning that is given to the church. Now, as you go further, we hear then the sixth and seventh part of this letter. The church in Pergamum is given now the call to exhortation, or the exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What it's saying is is that Some people don't have ears to hear spiritual truth. But if the Holy Spirit has granted you the ability to hear God's word, hear it in Pergamum. Hear this message. But just don't hear what I'm saying to you here. Hear what I'm saying to all these churches, all seven. The message is for every church. This is for you especially. But all the other messages you need to pay attention to. And then the Lord gives an interesting promise. There's this challenge or promise that's given to the church Pergamum, To the one who conquers. It's interesting that the first part of the word Nicolaitan is the same word to conquer. Do any of you have on Nike shoes today? That's the Greek word to conquer. Did you know that? To be a victor. That's where Nikes come from. So it's an interesting word. The Nicolaitans, literally the word means those who are conquering the people. So some would suggest a Nicolaitan was someone that was compromising with the world so that they might conquer their objection by being like them. That's one possible meaning of the word. Laos, laity, nico, like Nike, you know those two words, Nicolaitans. Well, the point here is the Lord says, I want you to know how you really conquer. To the one who's the real conqueror, that is the one who says, I will not capitulate to this new doctrine that's trying to compromise the high standards of the church. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now to the conqueror, to the overcomer, to the one who is faithful to the Lord, uh, the hidden manna, what does that suggest? Do you remember the story of Israel in the wilderness? They were fed from the heavens. And some of the manna was actually reserved in God's plan to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. It was the hidden manna. It was the manna that remembered that God did a very special uh, provision for the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. It's almost as if this is saying, I am going to open up my Ark of the Covenant and give you the miraculous food that was only for the Israelites and has been preserved until this moment. I'm going to let you feed on me the bread of heaven. Jesus, of course, uses that image of himself. I am the bread come down from heaven. Christ says, I will give you the full redemption that I have. The image of the white stone is an interesting one. Uh, We know this image in its reverse. Have you ever heard of being blackballed? We've all probably been blackballed along the way. Do you know how that works? They've invited you to be considered as a member of an organization. And everybody has a white ball for yes and a black ball for no. And everybody walks up and you hear a clink, but you don't know what color it is. There he goes, clink, 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 clink. And then at the end, the clerk comes up and opens it up and counts out if there are white balls or black balls or which is the majority. To be blackballed means you got blacked out. You're out of here. All negative votes. Isn't this wonderful? The Lord says... If we are faithful to him, we are going to get his divine yes. We will be his people. He will say, yes, you belong to me. I will feed you with manna. I will welcome you into my heaven with my yes. In fact, the yes will have your very name on it. But a name that's utterly unique. A name that only you and I know. You'll become my intimate friend. What a wonderful provision that is for those that say... I'm going to do the right thing, even though it's counter to what the world wants me to do, and countered even to what many in the church might be saying, well, maybe we ought to just do this. Okay? So what a marvelous letter this is. You can see it has to do with sexual impurity beginning to enter into the church's life in a way inconsistent with Scripture. So, following the responsibility I was given by my senior pastor, John Anderson, he told me as his assistant pastor, I need to explain how this is true in churches all over the world today. So as I meditated on it, this is what came to mind. Okay. So first of all, sadly, have any of you noticed how many times the Roman Catholic Church is in the news lately for some very sad things? Clergy, sexual abuse of children. We thought that was dealt with 10 years ago. It's come back. And now we're finding it's not just in one city. It's one major city after another. And it's going on around the world. When you look at this extraordinary, long, historic church, it seemingly has had courage, whether you agree with its theology or not, to have its martyrs. Think of all the saints who have laid down their life for Christ. Think of all the good things. Even if you're a Protestant, you can say... Roman Catholics have done, taking care of the poor, uh, those that are facing difficulties, uh, helping to educate, doing good in society. And yet, in their very heart, there is this grievous problem that is not being addressed and has not been addressed. Uh, It's interesting, when I was doing some of my Reformation research for the forerunners of the Reformation, I was reading uh, John Wycliffe. Remember, he's called the bright morning star of the Protestant Reformation. He says, one of the problems of our monastic communities and this enforced celibacy is that there is a great deal of same-sex activity that's going on among our clergy. It's an ancient problem. It's never been addressed. It continues. Can I give you an example? I had the opportunity to do a tour of Ireland about two years ago. I actually went around, so I was in the Catholic part. I was up in the Protestant part, and I saw the places where the battles, I could. remember all the struggles and explosions? You can There's all those stories. Some of you have done that trip, I'm sure. And uh, my tour guide uh, that I was with on this trip went by. There's some really spectacular buildings that were now empty up on the hillside. And she said, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic. Those houses of uh, big places had such a wonderful reputation. There was a house for orphan girls over here and a house for orphan boys over here. And we were always so proud of the work that they did. But when they were closed, some people went in and they discovered that there were secret tunnels that were running from one to the other that had been there from the very beginning, built so that there could be secret activities going on in ways that are inappropriate. And said, so we're very ashamed. We don't like to talk about this, but it's true. So, now, before we cast too many stones at our Roman Catholic friends, we have to realize that the news just broke about a month ago about a tremendous problem that occurred in our Southern Baptist community, uh, in, in the Houston area. They discovered that a pastor of one of the large churches was involved, again, in all sorts of sexual in, misconduct with the children of the church. And as they began to review and go into it, they discovered he had then simply been reprimanded and moved from church to church to church, where it was repeated again and again through the years. This is not just a Catholic problem. It's a Protestant problem. Uh, Maybe the saddest story is that I have to say, yes, it's even a Presbyterian problem and even serious Presbyterians. Uh, A story that broke my heart, but it's absolutely true, and I hate to tell you this, but these are my instructions I need to talk about. Is this real? This is real. It's an ancient problem that churches have to watch and guard against. There was a marvelous preacher in the Free Church of Scotland. Now, if you understand what the Free Church of Scotland is... There's the classic Presbyterian church that John Knox started that became the established Church of England. Over time, it lost its biblical witness. And another church came along and said, we're not going to be a state church, but we're going to carry on our legacy. We're going to keep the Bible central. We'll be the free church of Scotland. And this is one of the great preachers of that church. And tragically, they discovered him hanging with a noose around his neck they could not resuscitate him and as they went through the story they discovered the tragedy that there were at least seven women in the various churches in the presbytery he was actively having sexual relationships of an adulterous basis and he finally took his life in shame that he was so uh, inappropriate it had been going on secretly within the church for all this time Counseling cases, Uh, I hate to tell you this, but even within families, families that claim to be Christian families. We hear about stories of incestual relationships, abuse of grandchildren by a grandfather. I've heard of a recent story just like this not long ago. What am I saying? I'm saying the power of human sexuality is extraordinarily great, and we all know its power. Are we prepared to be holy in this difficult area in the church and not just blink a, a blind eye? The Bible says there's a church called Pergamum that was looking for ways to just turn their eyes to the problem of sexual misconduct. But you know, when we turn our eyes to a problem like this, over time it only gets worse. And so one of the things that I'm seeing by churches, because especially the way in which predators are seeking to enter the church to encourage sexual activity, especially among children, is that now churches are having to establish very clear policies on who works with children and who does not. Having background checks done, yes, for the church. Do you know why? We'll look at the Roman Catholic Church. A priest, simply recruited and allowed to exercise professional authority causing tremendous heartache. It's happened again and again in Protestant churches as well. And so now in this church and the churches where maybe you come from if you're visiting, I think it is absolutely a duty to recognize the danger of becoming a Pergamum-like church. is gigantic, especially in an age like this, where sexuality is allegedly a matter of one's personal choice and there are no social standards means we're vulnerable it means that we can have difficulty it means that we need to work hard to have godly standards in our personal lives in our community and our youth ministries so this is not a happy story but it is real and it is around the globe and it is a great danger that churches need to address Um, maybe I'll add one last example There's something about ministry and also the ministry of music where the danger of vulnerability towards sexual sin is gigantic. And so we need to work hard in our music ministries and our preaching ministries to put godly accountability and checks and balances in place. I'm being honest, okay? I wish I didn't have to tell you the story, but it's right out of the Bible. And it's right here in the daily news. And so... I'd rather be a church from Ephesus than a church from Pergamum. But they're all around us, and we need to pray. Okay, that's a pretty heavy topic, but let's continue. There's the church at Thyatira. Now, what we do is we go from Ephesus, the church that's Orthodox, but has lost its first love. We go to the church of Smyrna, which Christ does not criticize, but is facing suffering, suffering churches all over the world. We've gone to Pergamum, the church that is basically biblical but it is not addressing the sexual conduct that's misappropriated within it. The fourth church we look at is one who is not kind of secretly overlooking at it but has simply said we are going to be so much like the world that you can't tell the difference from us and the unbelieving world. The world and the church are totally integrated. They become one and the same. Still the church, but totally the world. So let's talk a little bit about what the church at Thyatira might look like. Some of the things we'll say about the church, some of the background of the city. There was a military stronghold for Rome, which is often the first city to be attacked by the enemy, often destroyed and rebuilt. So what you need to think of, this is on the eastern edge of the seven cities. Protecting Pergamum, which is the capital. Athiatira is farther out to the east, so that if an enemy comes, he's going to have to deal with this one first. So, this is the military protection site. Okay, Caesar's elite guard was stationed here. They would hold off the enemy long enough for the other cities to prepare for battle. It was also a great trade city that was famous for its dyes. This is where we hear again about the lady. In the church in Philippi named Lydia it was from Thyatira. The river that ran through this area had that mollusk that produced that purple uh, dye that would make purple cloth. It was very, very hard to get, very, very expensive to make. So purple cloth became the emblem of royalty because it was so hard to get. It would come from this region. Now, so there's the example. You can see where Pergamum is. And then you can see where Thyatira is. So it's there as, if you will, a vanguard protecting the capital city. Now, here's a look at the ruins of the city of Thyatira. Yes, there's the candlestick has been removed. In fact, every city we've gone to, the candlestick is gone. There's no longer a candlestick in Ephesus. No longer a candlestick in Smyrna. No longer a candlestick in Pergamum. No longer a candlestick in Thyatira. They've lost their church. Their witness is gone. Now let's look at the parts of what we learn as we look at the compromising church. The church that's simply saying we're going to do what the world does to get along. What's the commission? And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, another letter from the risen Christ designed specifically for this local church in history as we see a church that represents the churches that have decided to just go into peace with the world and no longer proclaim the distinctiveness of the gospel. And to this church, like the others, there is an element of Christ's character that is picked up from that vision in chapter 1, how Christ has designated himself, how he's described himself. And so we read, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Flaming eyes of fire and feet like bronze that's red hot coming out of the oven, molten and shaped. Burning intense heat. That, what's the significance? Well, obviously this means there needs to be purification. There's something very impure here. But as the Lord is coming to the church, he brings his commendation. He says, I have something good to tell you. He says, I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter work succeed the first. Now that's quite a remarkable statement. The Lord says, you're a busy church. You're working. You actually love. You have faith. You're serving. You have difficulties and you're patient. And you're even doing more than you were doing before. So it's not like they don't have social blessing and benefit. They're a church that have a lot of good things to offer. But what's the problem? Well, here's what we read. And to the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, He who has eyes like a flame of fire, and His feet are like shining bronze. His flaming eyes can look through what they're doing to see what they really are. He's coming in to walk among the church in His presence is going to be purifying because of what's going on. What is the condemnation? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Okay, the name Jezebel should ring in our minds from the Old Testament. Okay, we'll talk more about her. Who is it in this church? This is a symbolic name for her taken from the Old Testament. She calls herself a prophetess. It's now someone who's actually in public teaching of an official position of declaration. This is now not something that's going on within the church. It's now enshrined in the leadership of the church, proclaimed as authoritative, a prophetess, teaching, and by that teaching, seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, this may be what we would see are the distinctive marks of the Nicolaitans. That's how we described it above. They are people that say, we can go to all the pagan gods' altars and sacrifice to them, eat their sacrifices, enter into their worship because we're citizens of the community. We're just like everybody else. And, of course, we're Christians too. We're an all, we're a universalist and we love all religions. We do what them all do while we're still who we are. There's no diversity and distinction between the holiness of God. And now notice with these strong words, the Lord indicates that he's long-suffering. It says, I gave her time to repent. In other words, the Lord does not immediately judge us or a church when it begins to sin. There's time. But there is only so much time the Lord gives. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This sexual conduct is now enshrined as the official teaching of the church. It's now proclaimed by those in positions of authority. And so we might ask the question about Jezebel. Now, these images here are interesting to me. The one on the left, it reminds us of the story of the women who first were encountered by the Apostle Paul and Philippi, when he went there looking for if there were anyone worshiping God. By the river, he found them. So, this is in Europe. But you remember who he found there? Lydia from Thyatira. Lydia was the woman who sold purple cloth. She was there. And she insisted that Paul would make his ministry headquarters in her home. She is the godly woman of Thyatira. But there is an anti Lydia and Thyatira. Her name is Jezebel. Jezebel is the one who says, I want us to conduct ourselves just like the world. And so we think then about Jezebel, we can read that story in First Kings chapter 17. You remember the story where Ahab the king and Jezebel decide to worship Baal and to use their powers to overthrow the worship of the living God. And so she becomes the image, along with Ahab, of the godless king and queen of Israel's history. But in doing it, notice how the theology of their idolatry, as we'll see in a moment, is made to be very, very respectable. You notice in this chart, verse 24, it talks about the deep things, the depths, the mysteries. In other words, we are more fully cognizant of how we should be as Christians. Those old fashioned ideas of the Old Testament and uh, early Christianity, there's a better way. We need to be progressive. We need to move with culture. We need to be like everybody else because this is how you get along in the world. See the seductive character of being like everybody else. So, what's interesting is we think about uh, this. Uh, process then, is that the trade guilds, we'll talk more about them in just a moment, is that each of the trade guilds in Thyatira, and there were many of them, each had their own distinctive God. Their own way of worshipping that God. And the way they would do it would be through their distinctive sacrifices and then the way they would worship, which included this very physical sort of sexual conduct. And so the idea was it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're a carpenter, and this is the way they worship the God of carpentry, just do it. And if you are a, let's say, a, a builder, well, if this is the way builders worship their God, you do it. If you're a businessman, this is the way businessmen worship you. As a Christian, just go along with it, because that's your trade. Just do what you need to do. Be like everybody else. Don't let anybody know you're different. Because after all, this is you're learning some extra things that you don't find in your Christian position. So this is what made the temptation to compromise so great in Thyatira, the trade guilds. And again, you see the church, that's what's left of the church in Thyatira. It's just in ruins. So here's the condemnation. What do we learn? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each as your works deserve. Now those are strong words, but what we're learning here is that our conduct as Christians by dropping our values and becoming the same as the world is not neutral. It has consequences. In fact, it not only has potential danger for us, but it will in fact hurt the next generation as well. What we do determines what those who come after us do. And that is why the call to godliness is so critical in any generation. We become the weak link potentially for others that are going to face the damage that will come by sin. Strong language, the church that's just like the world, the professing leadership, proclaiming the sinful behavior of the idolatrous world and saying it's just deeper theology. No, the Lord says it will be judged. It will require great sorrow and hurt, not just by those who participate, but by those who follow. So the correction, our warning. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, notice now, this church is compromised but there's some who are not still committed to it. It is a mixed church, a church that has those that want to be just like the world and those that are saying, I'm not sure that's right. And these who are part of that church, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Many people are in mixed denominations, churches that have confusing doctrines. And it says, don't let them teach you what is not biblical. Hold fast to the truth. Stay faithful, because there needs to be, if possible, if God has put you there, a witness for the truth. Here's the challenge. okay? Now the challenge, notice now has changed the order. Before The call was before and then the challenge last, but the church is now heading southeasterly. Remember, we said the order is reversed. It's like now everybody's already uh, hearing about the other, so there's another pattern. But it basically says this, "'The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, "'to him I will give authority over the nations, "'and he will rule them with a rod of iron, "'as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, "'even as myself have received authority from my Father.'" and I will give him the morning star. Basically what he's saying here is, I will give you the blessing of Psalm 2. The Lord is the Messiah. The Messiah is going to uh, be blessing all of the world when His kingdom comes, and you as a faithful part of His church will be part of it. And the morning star, a symbol of Christ, you will belong to His new morning, His new beginning, because you've been faithful. And then the call, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit Says to the churches. So, the tyra churches compromised with the world. What are some examples in the world as we wrap up our study tonight? Well, perhaps the one that most came to my mind are called the three self-churches in China. I've had the opportunity to travel to China many times and teach at universities. I'm, I sometimes meet house church people, but I've been much more in the open side of it because I've been invited by the government. Uh, So I'm not seeing the house church as much where the persecution has often been. And to be a a three-self church, basically, uh, I can't go through all the history of it, but it's the church that said, all right, for protection from governmental persecution, we will follow along with all the identity of being fully Chinese. The three-self church words that meant once something else have now been adapted to mean We are the self-sustaining church of China, fully Chinese, fully loyal to the government, fully part of its program. And we are licensed and protected by the church. Now, the house church are those who say, we will not identify ourselves with the government. We will identify ourselves with the Bible because we are not going to change our message for the government. Now, people have said, wow, that was really radical. Why didn't they just go along? It's fine. The government isn't going to tell you what to preach. Oh, yes, they do. You know, in the Three-Self Church, there are certain texts you don't preach, like anything that suggests that you speak to the government about its misbehavior. Don't you dare do that. In a Marxist culture... You do not criticize the government. In fact, an interesting point has happened now. I may have mentioned this earlier, but it fits this point perfectly. The Three-Self Church is blessed by having the Bible published in China by the Chinese government, which is a beautiful thing. The only problem is all other Bibles are being banished, and Reverend Xi, who's now in charge of China, said we are rewriting the Bible for China. They're going to give you the Bible, but it's our Bible with the message we want you to hear. In other words, instead of having the scriptures above us, addressing the church and our lives, our families, our businesses, and our government, it's now a tool of the government that will be used to enforce its values. That's what happens when you compromise with the world. The world begins to tell you what you can have in your Bible and what you can't. Do you know what the liberal churches that are part of this? I'm going to talk about them in a moment. Many of them will tell you, you can't teach the Gospels as though that's Jesus' word. You don't know what Jesus said. That's just what people said Jesus said. You can't really know what Jesus said. The Gospels are not reliable. Okay, So... That then brings me what we see in China in a much gentler way because it's not by government force, at least not yet. The progressive churches are many of our mainline churches. Churches that have historic Protestant titles that were recognized. And let's say them, Presbyterian, since we're in a Presbyterian church. Uh, Lutheran churches. Uh, We can go through Baptist churches. We can go right down the list, Methodist churches. And they become Progressive. What does progress mean? We just can't be bound by old fashioned biblical Christianity. We have to go along with the times. We have to keep adjusting. And as a result, over time, what happens is that things that were once thought impossible to be in the church are now celebrated in the church. Uh, We can think of, I mentioned here GAFCON. I don't know if we have any from the Anglican tradition, but it's fascinating that the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church in America determined, yes, you must accept the ordination of practicing same-sex marriage uh, ministers. That is a requirement. You cannot speak against it. And others said, but the Bible doesn't allow it. They said, you must accept it. And so we have had churches saying we must be faithful to Christ. And there's one of the great churches that is called the Falls Church, outside of Washington, D.C. One of the churches, the vestryman George Washington, used to go to vestry meetings at. They said, we want to be faithful. We were here before the Episcopal Church ever got formed. And they said, you have to change. And they said, we will not. They went to court, and they lost all their historic property. And they had to start from scratch. Because the Episcopal Church says, we own your property, we own everything. And now they've started over again. Now, the churches that are trying to live with this crisis have said, Where, what do we do? We, we have a bishop system. And do you know what they found? There are bishops in Africa that still believe the Bible. Large Anglican churches with millions of members. And so now we have churches, and I've met some of the bishops, who have said, we are now part of the Anglican Church of Kenya, even though they're in America or Australia or somewhere else. And the word GAFCON is, an annual, uh, I think, in every other meeting now, the Global Anglican Fellowship. And they meet together to bring unity in the Bible. And the African bishops are the leaders because many of the churches here can no longer find a church where the gospel is still being taught and biblical standards are maintained. Uh, it's interesting that... Uh, The Archbishop of Sydney is a Westminster graduate. His name is Glenn Davies. And he was wrestling along with many others as the the big press to uh, change the laws of Australia were going on, trying to speak for historic marriage. And so men like these who say, I want to be Anglican, but the Anglican church is turning its back on the scriptures, they need to find a fellowship that's changed. So there are churches that are responding. Now, for mainline churches, one of the good news was quite remarkable. Maybe you were following the Methodist church. The Methodist church determined that it would not ordain a practicing same-sex or uh, homosexual uh, gay or lesbian minister, not because they hate them. They said the Bible does not permit this. And they actually voted and sustained their decision. Now, why did they succeed? Because of the African-American part of the church, that part says that we still read our Bible. We still know what the Bible says. So what is going on in this uh, Thyatira-like movement of progressivism is the abandonment of the foundational reformation principle of sola scriptura. we no longer bound by Scripture. Progress means we've progressed beyond the Bible. We've progressed beyond the Gospel. We've progressed to something better, the deeper things... A greater theology. And this becomes the Thyatira church of our day. Uh, We can see other examples, the emergent churches. Now, these churches are our younger churches that have come out of many of the millennial contexts and elsewhere that basically say, listen, the old-fashioned denominations mean nothing to us anymore. We just want to worship Jesus and have fellowship. And by the word emergent, what they're suggesting is This is our youthful entering into society with our own values. Now, that sounds wonderful, and I'm in favor of it. But if you look carefully at the agenda of those that launched the emergent church movement, they basically said, we only will teach the things that people really like to hear. Now, wait. There's a lot of things I don't like to hear, but God's word says I got to hear them. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We don't hear that stuff. We'll hear the stuff that's good for us, in our opinion. The emergent church is, if you will, a kinder and gentler liberalism. Instead of attacking doctrines like hell or the godliness of marriage and uh, same-sex marriage not being biblical in character, they say we just won't teach on those things. We just won't talk about them. That is a form of quiet compromise with the world one of the great things that Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say when he would preach in Philadelphia this is the ministers uh, before uh, Dr. Boyce a couple one before at 10th Presbyterian he used to say Lord would you please disturb the comfortable and Lord would you comfort the disturbed and so the Bible is designed to do that it's designed, designed to disturb us as we begin to move farther and farther away from Scripture. Scripture calls us to repent. Say, like we don't write Christianity. We listen to Christ and His Word. Biblical Christianity calls us back. We can see this going on in the military. It's tragic. But some of the men that I've gotten to know who are great leaders in the military, who are going and... Uh, risking their lives with the gospel, working with special ops groups and parachuting into dangerous places. They say, we are being told you can't pray in the name of Jesus anymore. It's not acceptable. You're in the government service. And they are being compelled to say, but I must. They're saying, if you do that, you're going to be called up for insubordination. And so there are many chaplains that are wrestling with, can I really maintain a Christian witness? What about when the same-sex marriage issue comes up in the military? We know that the military has been used in the recent administration to try to normalize all sorts of new relationships and gender changes. And now the chaplains are being said, you must do the marriages. And they're saying, we can't. They say, you must. That's your job. Can conscience still protect? The Thyatira force of government is coming against some of our great courageous heroes who are serving Christ in military and some are standing strong and some, I'll just go along with it. There are many issues where this comes up. I list some that came to my mind. Uh, The most obvious one is the redefinition of marriage. I am not opposed to anyone marrying someone else if the government says it's legal. I'm opposed for the church that says it's biblical to do so because we answer to a higher authority, to King Jesus. Jesus and it is a fighting issue today. Now, I could say a whole bunch of other things about this, but let me give you one example of where this issue of the LGBTQ issue comes to a head. Uh, it's a fascinating story where, uh, did I tell you the story about the uh, professor in South Korea last time? I can't remember, I've been speaking so much I can't remember. If I told you this story, please forgive me. Some of you didn't hear it anyway, so the ones that didn't hear it, enjoy it, and the ones who've heard it, go, go back to sleep. <laughs> well, basically it's this. I was in South Korea, and uh, I was getting ready to participate in one of the largest churches in South Korea. It's the Sarang Church, about 70,000-plus members. That's a Presbyterian church in one location. Can you imagine that? They have a subway stop all their own. They are immediately across the street from the Supreme Court of uh, the government of South Korea. It's extraordinarily beautifully situated, a fabulously beautiful building. When you go into the Sarang Church, you go. It's about a 12-story building, and nine of the stories are underground because they wouldn't let them build a building that would overshadow the Supreme Court building. So they went down. Gigantic building and beautiful worship. I've had the joy to preach there various times, and. Uh, on one particular occasion, I was getting ready to connect with the church, and before the meeting gathered, maybe a couple days, I met some of the people that were gonna be part of the program, and there was a professor there, a professor who had been a Buddhist monk, communist from another uh, university. He had studied at Oxford. While he was at Oxford, he had come as a Marxist professor, and he said, we gathered together so that we could learn how each of us from our Marxist tradition would go back to engage with Marxist ideology and activity in our different countries. He's representing South Korea and its Marxist influence. And he said, we all discussed the best way and we determined the tool we would use to assault the church is the LGBTQ program. We said, there's not a better one to do it, why? Because we will go, and we will go to the government and try to get the government to change its policies, which will cause great heartache to the churches. They'll have to deal with government change. And we will protest the churches for being bigoted and standing against what is charitable and loving. And moreover, we will force them to get involved in lawsuits by being compelled to do things they don't want to do, which means instead of spending money on missions and schools, they'll be spending it on lawsuits which will stifle them and slow them down. Isn't that an amazing story? So you need to understand the LGBTQ agenda is not an, just an accidental happy movement of the world. It is a bludgeon tool by a, a marxist oriented culture to attack the church and make it compromise with the world, to weaken it, to make it under the government control. Now, this gentleman who's the professor that I mentioned, I had the opportunity to talk with him, and I said, well, what are you doing going to speak at this church if this is your background? He said, I'm going to the church to apologize. I want to tell them that I am the man who has been organizing all the protests outside their church for the last several years. I said, how in the world did this happen? He said, it goes like this. Because I was so deeply committed as an atheistic, Buddhist, Marxist monk professor... So wanting to overthrow the big, powerful churches of South Korea that stood in our way, I decided I would watch every television preacher in South Korea I could. I would take down their teaching, their arguments. I would master them so that I could refute them and critique them with excellence. It's a scholar, and he took it seriously. And he related to me. He said, I was watching... Uh, Many of these programs, and there was one particular program I remember where the minister said something like this. I'm teaching today about the doctrine of sin. And I want you to know the Bible teaches that everyone is a sinner, including me. I believe in total depravity. I believe that there's no part of my being that can ever please God. I need a Savior. Now, the professor, when he heard that, he said he literally stood up in his chair and he wanted to say, that's utterly false. That man doesn't believe it. And he suddenly froze in his place. He couldn't get the words out of his mouth. And he fell to the ground. And he said, Jesus, your Lord. He was converted right on the spot, like a Saul of Tarsus conversion. And as the gospel began to work in his heart, he realized how he was trying to use this progressive progress, goodwill, to destroy the church. And the church's message had now become part of his heart. And the only thing he could do was go back to the church that he was trying to destroy and ask their forgiveness and say, I'm now one of you. That's a true story. Now, the Beauty and the painfulness of that is that that's being duplicated all over the world. Why do we fight this battle everywhere? Because it hamstrings the church. When the church compromises with the world, you know what? It's no longer an enemy to the world. We can fight it. We can stand against it. We need to have a spiritual renewal and the courage to do it. So there are many other things I could say. Our time is up tonight. So when we leave tonight... What I ask you to do, if you have a chance, is to read ahead. We're going to be looking at two more churches next Sunday night. Uh, They are the ones that follow. One is the church at Sardis, and the other one is the church at Philadelphia. The church at Sardis is the dead church. That's what follows this church. When you no longer are different from the world, why do you even have a church? It has nothing more to give. Think about your own churches, all the backgrounds, wherever you've come from, and read through the list again and say, what church are you like? And maybe we'll take some time next class, since we've been doing lots of lecturing, and maybe you can tell us a little bit of your own observation from your background. Now, maybe you don't want to do that. I'm not going to call anybody, but I want you to be ready. Now, the second thing I want you to know as we conclude tonight, as you've already learned, our dear brother, uh, John Anderson has left. He just left tonight. He's leaving early tomorrow or even late tonight because of the passing of his brother. And so he asked me since I'd be here to preach next Sunday morning. So I'll look forward to being with you Sunday morning for both services and Sunday night. So I'm not sure what I'm preaching on Sunday morning, but I'll invite you back for that, okay? So let's conclude in prayer as we wrap it up. Maybe we can sing one last hymn as we wrap up after prayer. Father, thank you for this lesson we've had tonight. These two churches bring us great heartache because we see how the sin that is in every one of us breaks out and harms the community around us, harms our families, our churches. Oh, how our churches need your forgiveness and your restoration. Lord, we pray for the churches that have so identified with the world that they're seemingly indistinguishable. Lord, would you give a renewal? just like this professor that I've spoken of tonight. Would you give him grace in his ministry there and give us grace in our ministries here. Lord, continue to build your church. We thank you for this time. And we finally pray for John Anderson and his family. Would you bless them in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this is our concluding hymn. We'll dismiss after singing.
0: 105, 105. This is just a simple chorus there. And it struck me <clears throat> when Dr. Littleback said, King Jesus. And uh, we